and welcome to this Cubs Insights Marketing Special brought to you by Cork University Business School. My name is Dave Alton, Marketing Lecturer with the Department of Management and Marketing and today we're talking all things marketing with some of the best business minds in the country who are making an impact not just in Ireland but on the international stage as well. Firstly, we have Declan Clary, Chairman of Cork City Football Club where we'll be talking all things sports marketing. Later we'll be joined by Paula Cogan, Head of Sales and Marketing with the Doyle Collection and finally we have Kevin Cullinan, the Head of Communication and marketing with Cork Airport to discuss all things international branding. We're here at Republic of Work and welcome to Cubs Insights. Cork University Business School is enrolling students in a new Masters in Strategic Marketing and Practice with classes beginning in September 2019. UCC is the first and only university in Ireland to offer an MSc of this kind, offering both consultancy and placement options. The new course is designed to appeal to students who are about to graduate or who've recently graduated with a degree in business studies. Mixing theory with practice, it'll provide crucial practical experience through an applied research and consultancy project in collaboration with an industry leader. Are you interested? Well, the MSc in Strategic Marketing and Practice is now open for enrolment through PAC.ie and proudly sponsors this podcast. Our first guest today is the newly elected chairman of Cork City Football Club and social media aficionado Declan Carey. Declan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Great to be here. So for the listeners who may not be aware, Cork City is a fan-owned club. Can you tell us a bit about what that means in practical terms and how the ownership model might differ from the majority of football clubs in Europe? Yeah, um, I guess, Dave, uh, you're you're a huge City fan yourself. um, And, uh, you know, back in the, the late... I suppose I suppose the 2008 early 2009 Forest was already set up at that stage it was a supporters run organisation that assisted the club in a voluntary capacity and um, just helped out on match night and uh, tried to advise the club on various issues that were surrounding um, helping with events and things like that um, Forest which was set up as a, a kind of a you know single person single share one person one vote uh, type organisation um, applied for a licence then to the uh, to the FEI to participate in the League of Ireland um, and uh, thankfully was granted a licence on the uh, 11th hour in 2010 um, and started off in the first division and uh, obviously as we know you know came back won the double in 2017 played in the Champions League last year um, and here we are and I think uh, yeah definitely I think the, the club itself has grown as a brand as well over the last like nine ten years especially um, and yeah that's kind of where I try to pledge as much support as I possibly can as well and from the marketing side um, but yeah it's uh, vastly different to how a a club would operate I think from you know the single benefactor say I don't know the the obvious example would be Dundalk or um, in Ireland um, and then you've got you know the Manchester United Arsenal's of these worlds Liverpool who have this you know investors that come in but look we're we're very different um, and the way we operate you know we appreciate feedback from supporters we take it on board you know we we are supporters ourselves we got six guys on the board now at the moment who are you know lifelong city supporters um we always have the best interest of the club at heart no one's in it to you know get a quick buck out of this we're always looking to see you know how can we make the club as big as we possibly can um which is a kind of a pride thing for all of us as well as supporters you know it's more it's more than about like going in and you know trying to even just win a couple of football matches over or, or a couple of trophies it's about you know long term where's the club going to be in 20, 30, 40 years which is what we think about rather than you know 
an investor might think, where do I get my return or when do I get my return? So, yeah. So it's a completely democratic model. It is a club for the people of Cork by the people of Cork, essentially. And ye run the football club. Ye determine what decisions are taken. Ye ye determine what the ticket prices are going to be. Ye determine what the various marketing strategy might be. And how much then do you rely on volunteers? And how much then do you rely on, I suppose, paid staff to make sure that everything runs as efficiently as an investor-run football club would? Yeah, like the... As you said there, yeah, it's definitely a club for the for the people of the city. You know, your city, your club is a, a term we, we, we use commonly on, on social media and throughout our marketing campaigns. But uh, yeah, like the volunteer aspect of the club, it's it's from the top down, basically. You know, it's driven down through the entire organisation. The entire board is six volunteers. Um, the board is typically made up of seven, but we did have Mike Durham step away from the board recently. So, you know, I'll be looking for someone else maybe to step up now and, and join the board in the in the coming future. But, um, yeah, look, we're, we're all volunteers. We try to drive that volunteer ethos throughout the the whole club. Um, we do rely on full-time staff and, and employees. Paul Witcherly is our general manager. We've got Paul DC, who's commercial manager. David O'Rourke, he's our um, merchandising manager. Um, and Anna Buckley, then operations manager. Obviously, John Caulfield then, who looks after all football activities in the first team. Um, Colin Healy is a, a full-time employee, looks after our growing academy. You know, we're continually adding teams um, to, to the whole club as well. So, you know, we do rely on um, on professionals and, and, and full-time staff as well. But throughout all of those departments, you'll find um, volunteer activity, even from, you know, merchandise, marketing, um, not even, the, you know, the things like the obvious ones on match night, like stewarding and, you know, selling tickets, selling match programmes, they're the obvious ones that spring to mind. But even in, in recent years, we've relied a lot and on even, like, you know, the the business side, like relying on people's, you know, volunteer time. And, you know, even uh, yeah, myself, like I started off, obviously, as a, as a volunteer doing, you know, the website and helping out with social media and different marketing. And it, it's just driven throughout the whole organisation. And it's, you know, it's something we can definitely be proud of. And I think... That does happen a lot across the League of Ireland anyway. I don't know if we're unique in that aspect, but I definitely think, you know, ultimately we do. We're so, I guess, heavily reliant on volunteers in one sense, but, you know, so appreciative of, of how we have that ability to, you know, to to rely on them as well and, you know, value their input and, did, you know, do have such a say in the club. A lot of our volunteers are part owners, as we know, you know, so... You yeah, absolutely. Kinda, you know, <laughs> and it's interesting as well. Like, I mean, you actually have a great story yourself. I mean, the Forest story is great, but you have a great story yourself in terms of your involvement with the football club. So you started off by actually building the for, the club's first ever website. Am I correct? Yeah, um, back in two thousand and four, the the club didn't have a website at the time. It relied on you know there was a handful of unofficial websites around unofficial forums, and the club didn't really have a focus on their online presence. Um, so I was like, I, I, as a young age, I was very interested in technology, and uh, geez, I've, I remember even when uh, Aircom launched broadband in our area at the time, um, and I finally jumped off the dial-up situation. It was like, you know, I really have to start kind of flexing my muscles with this now. But uh, yeah, um, yeah. So myself and my brothers worked on uh, a Cork City website unofficially. Um, just did it for the crack, as they say. Um, and yeah, one day, then uh, a couple of months into it, uh, we tried to run it as you know professionally as we could put up the ad kind of jokingly, um, you know, satirical article every now and again. But um, look, yeah, we got a call from the club then one day. Um, Brian Lennox was the chairman at the time. Uh, 
and look, they had they had a couple of guys involved as well that were advising the club from a, a PR perspective and thought, you know, a website was an obvious one that was lacking. Twitter or Facebook, even Bebo, I know it was miles away at this stage, like it was just that purely a, yeah, purely a website. Um, so yeah, we, uh, we kind of converted the website over and turned it into the Cork City official website. Um, yeah, I ran that then. My, my brothers kind of stepped away from it after a couple of years. Um, like they moved on, had families, had kids, had everything else. You know, so, the, you know, they, uh, they have bigger things to, to worry about for now. Um, so, yeah, they, they kind of stepped away and I, I carried it on then. And, you know, obviously as the, the online um, situation evolved and, you know, launched all the various social media channels. Um, and, yeah, I still have a, a keen interest in it, you know, and how the club is representing itself online um, and how our brand is, is performing versus, you know, um, especially clubs in Ireland, but even beyond that, you know, we always try to look at, you know, clubs in, say, maybe League One, the Championship, leagues around Europe that would be similar size to us and how we're, you know, how we're performing versus them. In terms of reach as well and things like, you know, how our, our brand is performing in general. So the so. old R&D strategy, read and duplicate. That's it, yeah. yeah. So... I don't think anyone could disagree that I suppose the fan ownership model thus far has worked wondrous for Cork City and the success that has happened on the pitch and off the pitch has been for all to see, particularly for the um, for the people of Cork. Do you think, however, that the fan ownership model does place somewhat of a metaphorical glass ceiling on where the club can go into the future and that it's very hard to get in that big chunk of investment that you might need to invest in a permanent home in the city centre for a club shop um, or if the club was to invest in kind of a pub or if they were to you know, really kind of drive on in terms of marketing and they needed that big investment in. Do you think it's something that will need to be looked at in the future? Not necessarily just in terms of Cork City, but in terms of fan ownership in general, maybe looking at something like the German Bundesliga 50 plus one rule. Yeah, look, it's uh, maybe the, the 50 plus one thing. It might be something that's you know too far down the line for League of Ireland clubs. Um, you know, obviously it, 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 it's very different in Germany. It's Football is their number one sport over there. You know, they, they're so passionate um, whereas here, you know, we've got a core um, fan base. Um, like the Cork City fan base is so spread out. You've got like, you know, I've got buddies that go to maybe five games a year. Then you've got your guys that go to every single game, home and away. Um, but they never want to become Forest members, which is completely fair enough. And I completely understand that. You know, they just want to support the team and they don't worry about all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes and all the, you know, that whole investment side of things or giving up, you know, their time volunteering which is completely understandable um, and then you've got the, the the other end where guys you know join Forest they volunteer on match nights they rarely even see the football anymore you know they're selling programmes they're selling match tickets they're you know attending meetings Monday to Friday um, trying to put the club in good stead so I think in terms of investment that's our investment is the people but I, I completely understand what you're saying about the you know the, the larger projects per se um, but I think that's where we need to rely on you know our relationships with you know say the FEI for example you now with the, the Glanmire project and you know working with the, the local councils and seeing what we can do there to kind of assist us as best we can um, you know we do have a, an excellent relationship as well with Douglas Village Shopping Centre we have a, a club shop based there so you know we do have um, various avenues you know we're working at the moment as well on you know match night hospitality potentially bringing a bar into Turner's Cross as well so you know these are all things that are you know medium to long term projects that we're working on but like are we restricted I wouldn't say fully restricted do we have hurdles we need to get over because we're fan owned and you know we have to go through the go through the process and go through maybe a a longer roundabout way I I definitely agree with that but I suppose then you know um, you definitely get more kind of appreciation out of it when you do have a project like that. Like you know, we've got a 
a club shop in one of the busiest shopping centres in in Cork and you know I think there's clubs all over Ireland would be envious of that or you know we've got we've got so much going for the club at the moment that you know even those clubs with, with these investors that they just don't have um, they may have a stadium and they may have this but I think that ultimately we have a a spirit that can't be broken, I would say. <laughs> that's very, yeah, that's very marketing and branding of you. There is an intrinsic value to owning a football club, I yeah. suppose, and that's what it is. And again, it goes back to this idea of a football club for the people of Cork, and it's not dictated by any one, um, by any it, one yeah. individual. So it regards then the importance of marketing. So if I was to turn around to you and say, fans support a winning team when Cork City are doing well, Turner's Cross is full. When Cork City aren't doing very, very well, Turner's Cross can be empty. Therefore, what's the point in marketing? What would you kind of say to that? Yeah, look, I, I guess that's been kind of bandied about and it's a difficult one to quantify as well. You know, just going back to a, a recent time, Shawnee Maguire, for example, that whole era, um, he was scoring goals. We were winning every week in Turner's Cross. I think we went on a you know 12-game winning streak. Um and you know, people were flooding out to Turner's Cross even for, say, no disrespect to Finn Harps, but they wouldn't be one of our you know, biggest attended games. But people were coming out just to see the team score goals. And, you know, but I think ultimately um, you can never just give up your marketing and your, your strategy. It's like, you know, our, our overall strategy is to you know, represent the club as a community club that's you know, a strong presence in the city and in Munster and in Ireland, you know, where this club that people go to and say, you know, yeah, I want to be associated with Cork City FC. Um, ultimately, football is football. Like results, we try to stem away from how they dictate, especially like our, you know, our gates and our finances. Um, and we're definitely moving as far away from that as we possibly can in terms of how that influences how we operate off the field. You know, we don't want to be in a situation where, you know, we finish a certain position on the table and we have to kind of, you know, look at our structure and the organisation again. We want to, you know, plan longer term. Um, put you know eventually go towards multi-year budgets and and uh, and definitely plan for the future and um look if that means uh, potentially it, you know at the moment I, I'm not sure where we are on the table I haven't actually looked at it in recent uh, <laughs> probably um, best you don't it's yeah, yeah look you know, it, it, it's amazing when you get into a position on the board um sometimes the the club's position on the table is something that you wouldn't wouldn't be so obvious to you especially you know when we're I think we're just below my table at the moment but look it's early days but uh yeah, look, I suppose we're still going to continue and drive on, um, proceed with all our various social media plans. Um, you know, we've had hugely successful marketing campaigns aside from success on the pitch. Like, for example, uh, you know, we launched our new black Adidas Away kit there a couple of weeks after the, a disappointing cup final where we narrowly just lost out to Dundalk and I think everyone was down. And, you know, we finished second in the table and it was kind of like, you know, there was a bit of a lull around the place. But I think, you know, that was probably our, you know, biggest selling uh, shirt in the last, God, maybe... 10, 15 years. So, you know, I think, and as well, our season tickets as well matched the the season ticket number from the previous year when we were double champions. So I do think that, you know, if you can if you can drive on and put a campaign together and, and really stay as, you know, stay in people's minds, um, it's well worth it. And um, obviously, you know, we do need to try and still attract that, you know, that supporter that might pick and choose the games that they go to every Friday night. But I think, you know, as much as we can do then off the pitch, um, you know, to, to brand the match night and make it a, an entertaining night out for, for a, you know, a couple, a family, um, a father and his kid, you know, that's that's ultimately what we'll continue to try to do. But 
um, and keep it as steady as we possibly can. There will be peaks and troughs, but try and try and level those out, as uh, as John Paul on our board would say. Yeah, it's all about uh, cutting out the peaks and troughs and having a a, a level curve. As nice, nice, and, <laughs> nice and boring, no shocks, no surprises. Yeah, absolutely. So then, in terms of that, then so obviously, like with marketing, it's not just about advertising. Marketing is also about the product that you're selling, and for ye all of that is wrapped up in the match night experience at Turner's Cross. And you yeah. mentioned just there that you've got families tar- coming to Turner's Cross. You've got, I suppose, lads who want to go for a, want to go for a few drinks and just go and shout and roar and scream. What do you do to ensure that you cater for all those different types of supporters? Because I suppose if you look at football, particularly in England, I think have suffered from this where they try to make all of the experiences associated with football very much family orientated yeah. and with that they lost a lot of that terrace culture that would traditionally have been associated with I suppose football fans in the in the UK Yeah look I, I suppose the obvious one is we do have a, a dedicated family area in Turner's Cross the family enclosure you know run by John Kennedy Pat Sisk and a, a number of uh, other volunteers at the club um, so you know as you said, there are just so many different um, fan groups that go to games, um, and, and they want to get something different out of the game. Um, you know, you've guys that go to the the, the old shed end, um, or the the Joe Delaney stand, or Coral Road stand, or you know, I still like to call it the shed end anyway because of that whole terrace culture. You know, I, I'm uh, I'm definitely a fan of the you know the football culture from yesteryear. I you know, I, I still call that end the shed end, for example, and I think all of the lads on our board still call it the shed. Um, which I think that it, that's great in a sense that you'd never lose that. And, you know, apologies to the MFA, you know, it is the Joe Delaney stand. You know, we try to do as much as we can on match night to, uh, you know, appease all the different um, groups and make their night as enjoyable as possible. You know, we uh, we, we change things up and we try to make the the experience as enjoyable as we can. Um, you know, even uh, try to bring in various, you know, different food options as well. You know, Clannacilty are a partner of ours as well. Another strong Cork brand. We brought them in on match night now as well and they serve their, their food there. You don't have guys that, you know, um, some people might never want to go to a match night chipper van in Turner's Cross but now we have this there as well and you know we've had pizza in Turner's Cross from last year as well you know caters to families and guys that want to you know go for a pint before the game maybe have a slice of pizza during the game go back to the pub afterwards So um, it's catering for all those different fan types essentially is what Exactly yeah yeah, and that's what you know that's why we've such um, and it's great we've such diversity on our board as well you know we've got guys that you know I would be I, I hold my hands up. I'd be very strong representative of the the online community of of supporters. You know, guys that use discussion forums and social media, and I I take like social media feedback to heart very much. So, like with guys, you know, tweeting about the club or commenting on Facebook. Let's talk about you know. that for a second. So, if you take, I suppose, social media and you take fans forums and things like that, for yeah. a lot of marketers it's a pain because essentially what's happened is the consumers or the fans have taken the power away from the marketer. The marketer no longer has full control over their brand. So when you're getting slated online or you're getting, we'll say, we'll call it feedback for for launching a particular piece of merchandise or because something on match night isn't going particularly well, like is that good for you that you're getting that feedback or is there a point where you're going, there's actually damage being done here because everything is obviously exaggerated on, on a social media forum and is lacking context yeah I agree with you there like look I'm not going to pretend I don't see all the negative comments like you know if we put out a a certain piece of merchandise and especially over the last couple of years and various marketing campaigns that certain people might deem to be cringy or a failure or whatever you know I think uh, like we did a brilliant one there up in the the hotel before the season uh, started where uh, the Cork International Hotel worked with us on that one um, 
where a girl got a, a season ticket as a, a Valentine's gift um, after getting all of these, you know, a Fitbit and a, an iPad or whatever in the previous years, and she was delighted. And, you know, it was, uh, look, it was an unbelievably cringy video, but I loved it, to be honest. I thought, you know, <laughs> look, controversy creates cash, like people, you know, commenting under and retweeting, and then, you know, at the end of the day as well, you could have a, a post as well. This always kind of, I laugh at this one, you could have a post that has 2,000 likes and 1,000 retweets and 10 negative comments, you know. It's the people that... And you're always going to look at the negative comments. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, suppose with that then as well, because I suppose marketers and kind of branding consultants would have very, very diversified views on this. Some people say it's all about, like you said, controversy creates, um, creates engagement and yeah. that's what we want. We want the engagement, we want the brand name out there. Whereas other marketers will be very much protective of this is what our brand represents and thou shalt not go down the yeah, path of kind yeah, of the yeah, slapstick yeah. kind of paddy power style of marketing. Yeah, what yeah. would your kind of philosophy be towards social media marketing? Would you be more on the kind of the edgy side and kind of creating that controversy or would you be more so on the side of no we need to protect this brand and what this brand actually represents? Yeah, yeah. Look, I guess controversy is probably a harsh word um, but yeah, like the definitely I think there's a balance there. Like, obviously the paddy power slapstick stuff like I think Cork City has, has kind of uh, delved into that occasionally over the last couple of years and you know some people love it some people don't and you know the occasional cringy tweet to another football club um, that we might have played uh, in the Champions League last year that was a, a, a pretty memorable one for me um, but yeah the uh, you know look it, 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 I, I like to think there's a balance you know we, we, we keep things as professional as we possibly can you know even if we are having a, a bit of a laugh and a joke you know we'd never you know go to town on someone or, you know, get personal with any other club or individuals, you know, it's always very light-hearted stuff and, you know, I think there's definitely something there for everyone. I think with social media you have to do that as well. It's the same as your match night. You know, your social media has to have something there to appeal to everyone. Um, you've got Instagram users that, you know, just take selfies all the time. You've got Instagram users that love taking pictures of their food, love taking pictures of their clothes, love taking pictures of whatever. So, you know, we have to be the same. We have to, you know... Some people follow our Instagram, they want to see action shots. Some people want to see promos for various discounts and offers. Some people want to see the newest merchandise. Um, and, you know, some people want to see updates on the Academy, which, you know, we, we, we got such strong feedback on that recently that we launched a new Academy Twitter account and Instagram um, over the last two weeks. So, so it's catering know, for all to, audiences, appeal, depending yeah. on different types. I suppose yeah. just a final question then to, to wrap up. I suppose if you look, if you listen to... John Caulfield, you look at a number of managers around the League of Ireland, they would say that the marketing of the League of Ireland has generally been quite poor and crowds have suffered because of that. And forgetting about things like facilities, infrastructure and all those longer term projects, if there was something that could be done in the morning where all clubs come together and do something that would improve the marketing of the league, what do you think that could that could be? TV. Yeah, ultimately it has to be the TV um, and just even the media in general. Um like there's, you know, I, I drive to work every morning, I turn on the radio and like if there's a, fair enough, Champions League is, you know, the biggest competition in Europe or whatever, but even, a, you know, Monday morning there could be games on a Sunday, you know, the headlines start off with, you know, um, you know, Jorgen Klopp delighted after Liverpool's 2-1 win, you know, and this is a, a you know, a, a, an Irish radio station. Why can't it start off with, you know, what result happened on the Saturday night, you know, Sligo beating Bowes or Bowes beating Sligo and, you know, a roundup of the results on Friday. Oh, by the way, Liverpool also defeated, you know, West Brom 3-1 yesterday at the at the Hawthorns. You know, why can't it just be a complete shift? Um, and look, obviously these companies have their own strategies as well. They need to keep listenership up and they need to, to drive forward and, you know, they have their own ethos around it. But ultimately, I think it's going to have to come from, uh, you know, the top down and, you know, 
it, it's Irish sport at the end of the day. Um, people go on about the success of the national team and, you know, why is it, why are we not qualifying for international tournaments as much as we can? But ultimately, all these things lead back to a root cause of, you know, we have a national league. We have very few players participating in, in, in the national teams. Um, you know, our TV rights is bundled with the national team coverage. It's a kind of more of an afterthought, really. And, you know, fair enough, RTE, Air Sport do such a great job on our, on our, um, on our match night coverage. But ultimately, it needs to be the, you know, the sole focus of football in Ireland needs to be the League of Ireland. It can't be uh, leagues across the water, um, unfortunately. Declan Carey, thanks for coming in. I think what you're doing with Forrest and in terms of the volunteers, the other board members, doing great stuff for Cork, doing great stuff for the community, both business and socially. Thanks very much for coming in. Thanks, Dave. Pleasure. University Business School is enrolling students in a new MSc in Strategic Marketing and Practice with classes beginning this September. UCC is the first and only university in Ireland to offer an MSc of this kind, offering both consultancy work and placement options. The new course is designed to appeal to students who are about to graduate or who have recently graduated with a degree in business studies. Mixing theory with practice, it'll provide crucial practical experience through an applied research and consultancy project in collaboration with an industry leader. Interested? Well, the MSc in Strategic Marketing and Practice is now open for enrolment through PAC.ie and proudly sponsors this podcast. Our second guest today is a proud graduate of UCC and the head of sales with the Doyle Collection who boasts a variety of hotels across the world in cities such as London, Washington DC, Dublin and of course the Riverlea Hotel here in our very own Cork City. Paula Cogan, welcome to the show. Thank you, delighted to be here. So the Doyle Collection is renowned for its global accumulation of both luxury and urban hotels. When you arrived day one as the Director of Sales, how did you go about cultivating the brand of the Doyle Collection and the individual hotels within that overall brand suite? Big question. Um, I suppose I've been very fortunate. I've actually worked within the organisation now for over 20 years. Um, And during that time, the brand has been enhanced in a huge range of ways. Um, I suppose the first thing is that we have incredible product um, to sell from a brand perspective. Our story resonates with people around the world. Um, We're owned and operated by an Irish family who've been involved in the hospitality industry now for over 70 years um, and are true hoteliers at heart. So that is the the key from a brand perspective and I think very much our USP um, internationally. And of course, then we have reinvested hugely in our properties and our aid properties in the last three years, spending over 50 million euro at this stage on the portfolio of hotels as well. Um, So, you know, when you have a a good product to sell and a good product to market, it makes it much easier from that perspective. So um, it's been a journey, um, certainly. Um, As you mentioned, we have um, two categories of hotels, both in the luxury and in the urban um, collection. Um, So again, I suppose resonating the differences between um, those two brands is very important. Uh, But again, being true to, to our key target markets and being true to our, um, our, our original brand as well, which is very much about giving Irish hospitality. 
And I suppose with any hotel, either in the luxury or the urban sector, it's all about superior customer service and giving, I suppose, not necessarily the customer what they want, but that they get more than what they're expecting from the market offering in any hotel. Like a lot of people say, I don't go on holiday to a city, I go on holiday to a hotel within a city. How do you ensure that level of excellence across all of the hotels um, in your organisation? I think for us, it's very much about consistency um, and it's making sure that everybody from the general manager down to the kitchen porter is aware of what our mantra in life is from a hospitality perspective. Um, People's attitude towards hospitality has changed incredibly. I've even noticed in the last 10 years. Um, So if you look at what five star deluxe hotels um, would have been offering 10 years ago, it was very much about the spa product and, you know, what brand of toiletry you were using. And the bedroom was the key focus of all hotels, be it luxury or not, um, that has changed completely. Um, And nowadays it's very much about the ground floor, um, the public areas, people having space to hang out, um, you know, being actually very aware of the environment as well um, and, you know, using local produce. So all of that, I suppose, very much resonates with our brand because we are an Irish company who is very proud to use Irish product everywhere we, we work as well. But again, it's about having a key focus on a daily basis on customers customer care um, and using all of the channels, as you know, nowadays, I mean, you're getting feedback from everywhere, be it TripAdvisor, social media, etc. But very much um, listening to your customer and listening to what their needs are as well. Um, And that happens at all of our hotels on a daily basis. And I think that really ensures that customer service is key. I suppose one of the, I suppose all industries have been disrupted very, very recently by digital and the hotel industry has been particularly disrupted by by digital. So if you look at the 2016 Airbnb um, economic impact report, it basically showed that the full occupancy rate of hotels, particularly in the mid to high end bracket, has reduced by about 20 Mm percent since Airbnb came onto the came onto the market. How have you coped with that disruption or are you offering a different product offering to your typical Airbnb customer? I think we're offering um, a different product, of course, in any of our cities. It is um, it is a growing issue. I mean, we have three very beautiful hotels in London and London has become a a key hub from an Airbnb perspective. Um, Certainly. I suppose where we would see the market um, would be competing would be specifically around a sweet product. So again, people who are coming into a city who potentially have a, an extended family group with them, who are looking for space that um, offers a kitchen, self-catering options as well. Um, and that's where Airbnb has, has really taken a hold on the market. Generally, uh, as I say, from our perspective, we don't find that we are competing directly with Airbnb, but certainly the cities such as Dublin, London um, and Washington, it, it would impact on, on our business definitely um, from from a conference perspective, um, but you know, from my from my thought process, it's it's great to have a, a, an alternative offering in a city. Um, it can't all be just about four and five star hotels. Um, and again, as I say, if the demographic um, and you know the age profile wants something that's a little bit different, we have to listen to that, and we have to take elements of Airbnb that Airbnb offer and have them in our hotels as well. So again, looking at having very lovely spaces on the ground for that people can relax the. People People can take a book um, and just enjoy a view. Um, and, you know, we've really um, enhanced the hotels from that perspective to ensure that people, when they're staying, have that home away from home feeling as well, which I suppose is really what Airbnb are selling. 
So I suppose it's like any disruption. You essentially have to raise the bar of your brand to the level of the market and what the, and what the customer wants. And you've you've certainly uh, you've certainly done that. So moving on from Airbnb, but another disruptive factor and probably a more disruptive factor, if anything, is the massive growth of OTAs such as Booking.com, Travago, who I'm sure you're delighted to give a commission every time someone books uh, books a uh, place to stay um, in the Riverly Hotel. So. Between, I suppose, 35 to 40% of all bookings tend to come from these OTA sites. Is your strategy to, I suppose, get people to your website first and foremost? Or is it about cultivating when someone actually stays in your hotel that they then go and book via directly? Or how do you operate with the OTAs? I think we, uh, I suppose, um, very quickly understood that we needed a strategy around OTAs and effectively OTA management. Um, I mean, they come with huge positives, but they also come with with elements of, of negativity as well. Um, again, they provide us with, um, you know, from a, from an international standpoint perspective, they provide you with a window to the world. Um, you know, if you look at figures now from Asia, as well and you know the OTA explosion there um, for us to actually go out into those marketplaces and buy effectively advertising and buy that marketing um, channel would be would be ridiculously expensive for us to do so OTAs provide us with, with that view to the world um, from that perspective so that's a huge positivity that we see but again it's managing that channel like you would manage any other channel in your business so again I suppose I always explain that the hotels work somewhat like the airline industry because people you know very much understand um, the airline model that I suppose we have to thank Ryanair for putting in play but again the further out you book the better value that you're going to get for your stay in a, in a hotel, etc. as well. And again, you know, working with that and ensuring that, yes, we work with OTAs, but we manage um, how many, how much of our inventory inventory we give to the OTAs to sell on our behalf. And then that we put, um, you know, certain packages that will work long term with them. Um, but then again, I suppose in a short term, if there is a need to fill in a very short period of time, the OTAs have that ability to do it as well. So again, I think very much like any disruptor, it's, it's it's about having a strategy around it and managing it and not letting the, just the forces uh, manage you from that perspective as well. And, and we've been doing that for the last five to six years. And I suppose um, hotel industry is no different to any other industry in terms of we'd always say that it's easier to retain and generate more value from a current customer than it is to possibly acquire a new customer. So would you engage in things like email marketing, retargeting on Facebook and that type of thing as a means of going to the customers who would have experienced the Riverly Hotel, for example, up close and personal, they enjoyed their experience why wouldn't you book with us directly again? Absolutely, 100%. And I mean, I suppose that's something that we are very, very um, good at, I would say, within our hotel company is um, the repeat guest and making sure that their experience um, is very much driven about um, having stayed, but then making contact with them to ensure that the next time that they're staying, that we're front and centre of mind and that they are booking through our own website as well. I mean, our own website um, as a model works incredibly well and um, as a commercial model has been really really, really effective um, for us. But again, it's making sure that we're putting the right product on our website that people want to buy. Um, Again, I think it's interesting to see that um, in the past, people would take an advantage of booking further out because 
effectively they felt they got um, a, a deal. But now what has happened is lots of the hotel companies globally have put restrictions on that. So you're basically paying for an advance purchase price um, and it's tying uh, people into paying 60 days out. Um, and what we found now is there's a huge move back to people wanting flexibility because again, I suppose there's a lot of uncertainty in the world at the moment. So they want to be able to book something that allows them that, that flexibility to change date or to cancel within you know a seven day period. And we offer quite a lot of that through our own website and that really has helped move the channel forward as well. And again, we're very good at uh, managing um, our local um, experiences. So we are part of what's called Global Hotel Alliance and there is a loyalty programme called Discovery um, as part of that programme and that has really enhanced the offering that we're able to give to our regular guests as well because it's not points driven, it's, it's experience driven. So we have a whole concept called Slice of the City. So for instance in Cork it's about um, promoting things like the Franciscan Well, it's promoting the art galleries etc and giving our guests who stay on a regular basis an experience that they're not going to get if they book just via um, you know a, a third party website or if um, you know if they're points driven it's it's very much about an experience and that has been hugely received by our guests So it is really that holistic package that you're offering and that's where your competitive advantage comes from over possibly the OTAs or consumers booking directly with the OTAs so that's very very interesting mm-hmm. So moving on then slightly from that so in November 2018 as you're aware uh, Marriott announced that they, that they had a breach of their data of over 500 million um, customers it was basically the biggest corporate hack of all time Do you think that, and not just in the hotel industry, but do you think that regulators, governments, industry are doing enough to protect consumers, given that a lot of this data is actually held for the purposes of marketing? Sure. Um, uh, it's it's a huge um, focus in our company, I will say. And I mean, you know, we are not um, a, a very large player in that we have eight hotels within our portfolio. But um, we've taken GDPR um, very much to heart. And again, it's it's from ground level up and ensuring that everybody is aware um, of the legislation and of the importance of data and, and protection of data. Um, so it is, it is, as I say, a key focus for us. I do agree. I think it's incredibly important that um, uh, we, we make sure that um, data is, is managed effectively as well. Um, from a marketing perspective, I would say um, it's interesting. I would get feedback from uh, a lot of our customers to say that they you know, receive an awful lot of information on a regular basis from certain hotels and not as much from us and maybe that they would like to get more information. So I think that's a really good sign that we're not overexposing any of our customers um, and their data and taking that incredibly uh, seriously as well. Excellent. And I suppose finally then, if you're talking about and we've spoken about this word disruption quite a lot today, what do you think is possibly the next big marketing wave within the hotel industry? Is it voice related technology? We've seen the growth of Amazon's Echo over the last kind of 18 to eighteen to 12 months. Um, is it virtual reality? Is it augmented reality? Where do you think the next big thing in the hotel industry is going to be? Well, I do think that it's interesting to see how Google are very much into moving into that space and, and really, I suppose, taking on the um, OTAs, which is going to be an interesting one. Um, I think it's, it's interesting to see that Airbnb have introduced hotels onto their website um, in the last six to eight months. Um, the feedback we would get is that it's it's limited currently, but again, it's an area, it's a space that um, they're interested in moving into. So it shows, again, that even their model is going to have to change because um, their customers are looking for a hotel experience as well. Um, so I think what, what's going to happen is that, um, you know, the opportunities to book by certain channels are going to change hugely. People are trying to buy um, their customer base, definitely. You can see that with, you know, 
know, offers um, all of the OTAs offer effectively um, a loyalty program in in ways, and that you know you stay ten room nights, you get one free, etc. All of that kind of offering as well. But I think the customer is very discerning. Um, definitely, uh, you know, I've noticed that in the last ten years. Um, being an ethical company is incredibly important and we take that hugely, um, very seriously in our own organisation. Uh, being aware of the environment um, is, is is a crucial element as well, which we are um, from my company's perspective as well. So all of those elements are going to set us apart and be our USPs uh, going forward. The channel people book, it's very much up to um, their own decision. But again, I think they, they will buy in a very different and discerning manner um, from what they have been doing in the last 10 years or so. And I suppose that is the message that even with all this technology out there, you talk about Google search, you can talk about voice, you can talk about the OTAs, you can talk about the disruptions of Airbnb. Ultimately, it comes down to what the customer wants from the hotel experience and then he actually going and actually providing that experience in allowing for the most authentic experience as you can possibly give the give the consumer absolutely paula cogan it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on thank you very much thank you So next up, we have the overall winner of the 2018 Cork Digital Marketing Awards. He is the Head of Communications and Marketing with Cork Airport, Kevin Cullinan. Welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. So they say a city rising is a beautiful thing. Can you talk a little bit about the growth and progress that's been made in Cork Airport over the last number of years? Well, I suppose the growth of any traffic in aviation is a direct correlation of economic growth. So... As Ireland exited the recession, the global recession we've experienced, what we're seeing now is for the fourth consecutive year, passenger numbers going through Cork Airport are on the rise. Uh, This year, numbers will be about 2.6 million passengers, um, which will be about an 8% increase on on last year. And again, that's been driven by the number of new routes and new airlines that have come into Cork in recent years. But also the less sexy side of of that story is the fact that existing airlines operating existing routes are adding more frequencies and more capacity either with bigger aircraft or by going from three times a week to five times a week. So all that aggregated up has made Cork Airport Ireland's fastest growing airport uh, in the first quarter of this year. And looking at the forecasts from the other major airports in the state this year, by year-end Cork Airport will have outgrown in percentage terms uh, all of the other airports in the state. So again, that has been uh, a long um, process because the average gestation period for new route is at least 18 months. You're dependent on airlines having available aircraft or getting delivery of aircraft that are on order. And then you're competing for those aircraft in as as competitive an environment as IDA Ireland competes for foreign direct investment into the state. So we've got to make and continue to make the most rigorous, robust business case for new business. And I think that's what's fascinating about your role as head of communications and marketing is that unlike most jobs where you're focused on either B2C or possibly focused on B2B, you guys need to focus on both. You need to drive passengers into Cork Airport 1 and secondly, you need to bring routes or upsell for bigger aircraft and so on and so forth. So can you tell us a little bit about your job in terms of what is involved in that B2C and B2B environment? I suppose we split the roles into two a couple of years ago because we found um, they're both real 
big, hairy, audacious challenges every year. Um, so on the B to, to B, on the business to business side, our, our aviation business development team factor in Hanover this week um, meeting um, Europe's airlines. Uh, it's it's an event which is akin to speed dating for airlines and airports. You get a 20-minute slot to make the most compelling case. Either you're trying to progress an existing relationship with an airline or you might be meeting an airline for the first first time and Invariably, the first thing you have to take out is a map of Ireland and show them where Cork is and tell and sell the Cork story that, you know, we're the second biggest metropolitan city area after Dublin. Uh, in terms of future growth, we know from Ireland, uh, the, the Ireland 2040 plans, over the next 20 years, Cork is going to be the single biggest driver of the economic engine for Ireland. And population is going to come with that. So when we're sitting down, we're, we're trying to make as a strong and robust business case of why Cork? Why will an airline make more money if they operate a route from Cork to somewhere in Europe or the East Coast of the United States or North America than they might make from a competitive bid from another airline or another airport across across Europe? So it's our competitive set isn't just the airports on the island of Ireland, which very often people say, oh, you're competing with Kerry or Watford or, or, or Shannon or Dublin. Uh, yes, we are in a domestic sense for passengers, but in terms of our number one customer, which is the airlines, we're competing on a pan-European basis. Um, so that makes it very exciting. Uh, it makes us all very much uh, um, consumers of any economic data we can get. We're a very data-driven business, um, so we're not constantly crunching numbers, either economic data um, confidence surveys from the Chamber of Commerce, uh, anything that comes out of the CSO or Tourism Ireland, Falch Ireland, uh, any economic data that can make a compelling case why people from Cork, and we have the second highest propensity to travel in the state after people living in Dublin. But we're not just Cork's airport. We also serve a broader catchment area, which are the contiguous counties to Cork in Kerry, Limerick, Tipperary and Waterford. So that population base of 1.6 million people, um, it gives us an edge rather than just talking about a as, in, as we would have been up to now, talking about a city of 120,000. So even the, the boundary change within Cork City and Cork County Council comes into the mix. And that's the first job, to get an, get an airline uh, enticed um, to consider a route from Cork. And then once we have it, we have to obviously put bums on those seats for the airline. And then our consumer advertising stream kicks in. So creating the awareness of the new route with the airline, all of the traditional forms of media come into play uh, radio, billboard, out-of-home out advertising, and more and more so these days, digital marketing and using social media to really geo-target the audience we want to, to attract onto those routes. And again, looking at the, their interests um, and marrying them with the needs of the, the airline. So you mentioned social media there. So I saw that, uh, I think it was last week or maybe two weeks ago, you were the winners of the international Moody Awards for the best uh, Facebook use of Facebook. Uh, congratulations. So I suppose moving the conversation slightly to social media and to Facebook, a lot of commentators would say that the organic reach of Facebook or businesses using social media as an organic tool to reach our audiences is pretty much dying off and it's now very much a pay-per-play kind, of, um, kind of an environment. Would you agree with that or would you disagree with that? I think we're trying to marry both. Um, we're obviously trying to create as engaging content as we possibly can and uh, to, to key audiences. Um, travel is quite an appealing um, business to be in because um, you have the allure of, you know, 52 destinations this year to sell. So, you know, 
whether you're selling, you know, Christmas markets in the autumn or a city break destination for the spring or an annual two-week holiday. Um, there's a, a myriad of different products that you can sell and, uh, and appeal to. And I think social media still is a great platform to do that. To do it even more effectively, however, we're, we're having to look at, obviously, paid advertising on some of those social channels, um, particularly Facebook. Um, and again, we've seen, I suppose, a levelling of Twitter activity and, and, and new Twitter users coming into our account, whereas Instagram has gone through an explosion, uh, certainly on our account, over the last three years. So we're trying to find respective roles for each of those channels, whether it's you know our LinkedIn page, appealing to obviously business makers, movers and shakers, whether it's opinion leaders on Twitter. Um, there's a bias, obviously, towards uh, females on both our Facebook and Instagram accounts. So again, we're tailoring content uh, and marrying that with whatever offers in terms of price sales that the airlines may have. Or again, if we have, say, slow moving stock for an airline where there might be a destination that isn't just as appealing in, in a, on a wet Thursday in November or wet Tuesday in January, we might have to find out more creative ways to sell that destination to an audience. So it's very much an agile strategy that you adopt and I suppose that's what digital marketing allows you to do. Again, if you've got space on an aircraft or you've got capacity issues, again, you can go and actually target those specific people who you feel you can, um, who you feel you can fill those routes with. So beyond that, then going back to the kind of the B2B element, then market intelligence and data is hugely important to any business nowadays, but particularly for you guys when you're looking to make this business case to a number of airlines to promote routes through Cork. Can you talk a little bit about that research process that you tend to go to to gather up this information and then how you possibly pitch this to potential um, to potential airlines? So first and foremost, we conduct a reasonable amount of primary research. Um, we do continuous passenger surveys in the departures area of the airport literally 355 days of the year. So they're conducted by Red Sea Mark Research on our behalf. So they interview a representative sample of 5,000 passengers, which are representative of the 2.6 million people that will fly out of the airport this year. And then obviously we, we arrange quota samples um, respective of the 52 destinations. So we know firsthand where people are ultimately flying to. They might be making a connecting flight through Paris, Charles de Gaulle with Air France, but going on to Guadeloupe. Um, they might be going to Asia. They might be going to, to, to Australia. Or they might be just going point to point on, on any of the, the 50 odd destinations direct from Cork. So again, we're able to aggregate up how far in advance did they book their seat? How many are in their travel party? What was the price of the airfare? Did they shop or consume food and beverage while they were at the airport? Did they use a business lounge? Did they access our free Wi-Fi? So we can build up a composite picture of, of different passenger profiles, which again hold us in great stead if we're looking to, to pitch a new route, uh, which might have similarities with an existing route we have, and we can compare and contrast what an airline can expect in terms of passenger profile. Um, Allied to that, obviously, we're, we're consumers of a lot of, of secondary um, data um, we can glean from, from various aviation sources. So, again, that through ticketing that comes through, again, there are, there are data sources that we subscribe to. So we can see, for example, a British Airways passenger that might board in Cork that's going to, to Melbourne um, over Heathrow. We can track them. And what we're trying to constantly do is, is build up a composite picture of a market. So, again, being part of the DEA group, we also know people that might be leaking from our catchment area out of Dublin Airport. So an example would be, you know, a couple of years ago, we, we amassed a figure of 16,000 people from our catchment area were flying out of Dublin Airport to go to Madrid every year. 
And we knew if we could provide a direct service, we'd stimulate that market even further. So when Iberia Express were convinced that they could make money on the route, um, then we had a real compelling argument because that 16,000 was a market we could bring back down south and have fly direct out of Cork. Um, and there's usually a, a multiplier effect of two or three times that once you provide the, the service. And that, that has proven over the last couple of years. And again, because it's Iberia and it's Iberia Express, a flag carrier for the Spanish people, we're finding you know 60% of the bookings on that service are tourists coming into the region. In some cases, there are people that learnt English as a foreign language as a teenager. They're now coming back with their own families wanting to rediscover the wild Atlantic Way or Ireland's ancient east and using Cork as a, as a gateway to both of those. Um, so we're constantly looking at data to make that compelling business case. Excellent. And I suppose there'll be a lot of graduate students listening to, listening to this podcast. Um, as someone who has built a marketing team and a very, very successful marketing team, what advice or what do you look for when you're looking to hire a graduate out of college? What is it that possibly sets someone apart uh, during the hiring process? And then beyond that, what should a graduate do when they're actually looking to prove themselves and climb that corporate ladder within any organisation? Well, given that they're usually graduates and they probably already know their ABCs, I I look at at three factors, what I call the DEs and Fs. Peter Drucker made a very interesting statement very early on in my career, which stuck with me that, you know, um, you can't motivate people. People must motivate themselves. So I look for self-motivators, people that can show either through college or through work experience that they're they're well-driven and they have a, a career goal in mind. Um, the E, I would say, is the entrepreneurial flair, people that can be adaptable. Um, we work in a very fast-moving consumer uh, industry in aviation. Uh, you need to be agile. Um, So you need to be constantly looking at new ways of doing things or doing things differently uh, and realising when is the time to move and adapt and change. And the F, I would say, is focus. People that can can knuckle down uh, and and work diligently um, to sometimes exacting timelines and deadlines, um, but realising that, you know, you know, done is often better than perfect. You know, to get a job done 90% uh, on time is better than waiting for perfection. And uh, sometimes it's trying to make that, that, that move from, I suppose, an academic mindset into a commercial uh, acumen. Um, so they're the three things I'd look for. D for Drucker, you look for self-motivated people, entrepreneurs and people that can have a focus. I think that commercial mindset is absolutely crucial. Again, it's it's all well and good to have the kind of the theoretical support or to understand marketing, but then to actually go and put it into practice, it can be a big leap for a lot of um, for a lot of graduates who I suppose I suppose they don't necessarily know how an organization will work. And do you think with that there's possibly been an overemphasis on graduates being a bit too focused on the digital marketing side and kind of conventional marketing wisdom and practice has maybe even forgotten about a small bit? I think what's great about most of the the undergraduate programs now is that there's some element of work experience built in. So people are getting the chance to apply, you know, their their academic groundings in real life businesses. And I, I think, you know, you need that very solid foundation. Um, I know certainly my business studies degree um, and, you know, I graduated in 87, so it's a, a couple of decades ago now. But I still find to this very day um, some of the theories uh, and processes and procedures that, that were drilled into me still hold me in great stead, even though the marketing landscape has changed phenomenally, um, seismically even, uh, in the intervening years. So I think it, it's very important that, that people take that time in college um, to understand the theory and realise, you know, ultimately what marketing is about. 
um, and that you know it all has to be on hinged on consumer insights and, and, and serving needs profitably. Um, but how you do that these days is a very different animal to how it would have been in the 80s, 90s or even early noughties. Um, and I think graduates are coming out now having sampled even through case studies and real life business, business uh, case studies and projects um, and having to have gone out and done primary research themselves. They realise, you know, there are, there are various elements of the marketing uh, mix and various elements of your marketing toolkit that you'll have to kind of use and be adaptable to use um, depending on who, what the, the, the consumer target group is or what the product or service you're marketing is. So I think it's getting that, that, that balance um, right, not realising, yes, in this, this era, digital marketing, social media has, has a role to play, but it's not the be-all and end-all of everything. 100%. So just to wrap up then, for you, what does success look like for Cork Airport in the next five years? I think success will be that we continue on the growth trajectory that we're on. Um, this is year four, so um, I was very fortunate to come into the airport 13 years ago on a 12-year trajectory of growth and, and see that continue f- um, for, for, for four further years before Lehman Brothers crashed. Uh, in, in, and then we obviously saw a demise of traffic through the recession. So I think challenge now is to keep that growth trajectory going and continue to add more international routes. This year, as I say, we'll serve 2.6 million. That's only 200,000 shy of the peak that we would have been at in the boom. So I'm hoping we'll we'll break that barrier in the next two years. And I suppose for me, uh, a career ambition will be to see that first direct transatlantic flight to New York City uh, manifest itself in the next two to three years. And we'd all absolutely love to see that. Uh, Cork Airport, the gateway to everything that is good about Cork. Kevin Cullinan, thanks for joining us on the show. It's been a pleasure. And that's all we have time for on this Cubs Insights Marketing Special. My thanks to all our guests, Declan Carey of Cork City Football Club, Paula Cogan of the Doyle Collection, and Kevin Cullinan of Cork Airport. Anthony is back for next week's show where he'll be bringing you all the latest insights from the cutting-edge research taking place here at Cork University Business School. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast on both Apple Podcast and Spotify. And for more information on all the programmes available at undergraduate and postgraduate level, visit www.cubsucc.com. Cork University Business School is enrolling students in a new Master's in Strategic Marketing and Practice with classes beginning in September 2019. UCC is the first and only university in Ireland to offer an MSc of this kind, offering both consultancy and placement options. The new course is designed to appeal to students who are about to graduate or who've recently graduated with a degree in business studies. Mixing theory with practice, it'll provide crucial practical experience through an applied research and consultancy project in collaboration with an industry leader. Are you interested? Well, the MSc in Strategic Marketing and Practice is now open for enrolment through pac.ie and proudly sponsors this podcast.